Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. How often do we see a movie depict someone bumbling along not doing so well, lacking in a lot of personal areas, then a big incident happens and they quickly rise to the occasion, going from zero to hero. And I wonder what percentage of movies depict this. It's the hero story, and it's an incredible amount. We all tune in to all the self-help info, like this podcast, to try and become the hero. But isn't it interesting that they don't show this in the movies? They don't show some person bumbling along and then years of personal development happen to create them into better people. The incident happens, a purpose, and they just get up and forget about themselves to a big degree and become what's needed to overcome whatever the incident needs. The purpose is what refines them. This is the message of Lynn Twist, who I'm back with to discuss her personal values, motives, and habits in the key areas of life fulfillment. You'll hear over and over and over again how it's her purpose that directs every area of her life and drives her. You will not hear any pithy claims or directives, just her humble account of what she values and how she practices those values. And she comes back over and over to her purpose. It's really incredible to hear. Lynn talks about her unrelenting stand for the possibility of life, her efforts to have appreciation for her life, her belief in the omnipotence we all have for the conversation in our lives. She sees her body as an instrument that she must take care of. And in her 70s, she's doing parkour. We really got into her mentioning how you can pick up on someone's mood long before we pick up on their attitude. And I've continued to talk about this and ponder it. This and so much more. It's just an incredibly intriguing and for me, convicting conversation. You can find Lynn Twist's brand new book, Living a Committed Life Anywhere, and connect with her at soulofmoney.org. If you find value from this podcast, it's a gift to me, to us, if you would leave a rating and a review. Of course, the best thing you can do is just talk about what you hear with someone else. Don't let it just end at the end of this podcast. You can always find me online, social media at kevinmiller.co. we got a brand new website there. Next up, Lynn Twist's Purpose Driven Values, Motives, and Habits. Lynn, I like talking about commitments because as we walk through these areas, these are all the big commitments of our personal lives that we take into the world and whatnot. So it's so fitting. And I always start off with the spiritual one, which is interesting because in your book, and actually even in, as we talked previously, you know, you talked about these commitments, these callings, use that word, and often coming from the source. And as I talk about this with people, not everybody is, you know, religious, not everybody, they look at spirituality different. And sometimes I'll even have people on that go, gosh, I don't really know where I am spiritually. I say, gosh, the, the by proxy of you being on this show, having usually written a book or done something that you're trying to get out, you are serving a greater purpose. And to me, that's the core of, I feel like that's a core of spirituality. And as I read your book, I thought, it feels like to you, that's the core of commitment. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah. For me, the commitment has a spiritual root. 
Um, and now when I say spiritual, I know people, for some people, that's not the word they would use, but it has a root in source, what I'll call something larger than ourselves, something that is beyond our own, um, you know, small lifetime on this planet. It, it might be the natural world. It might be the universe. If those terms work better for people, then um, I offer them. But we all know there's something. There's something going on. You know, there's a, a phrase from Thomas Berry. Father Thomas Berry is a wonderful ecologist who lived in the 20th century. He says that the grace and guidance that brought the universe into existence is still here is still guiding us. And that's kind of what I mean, the, the ultimate guidance that is beyond what the ineffable, beyond what we can actually even understand or talk about. Uh, that's what I'll refer to as source. And for some people, they call it God. Uh, and it's, it's um, embedded in a, a religious context. Um, that's not my um, place any longer. I used to be there. I used to be uh, in a in a religion, but I'm not anymore. I, I appreciate that and respect it, uh, and have enormous um, reverence for the, the the great religions of the world, and also see them as a little bit stuck, uh, you know, with with beliefs that somehow are have gotten a little bit distorted over the years. So I'm really talking about the ineffable, that the the you could say mystical as well as the spiritual. But when something happens, that's like, oh my god. How did that happen? How did that happen? I can feel something, something guiding me, something calling me, something pushing me, something, the all-knowing. So that's what I mean. We, in part one, we, we talked about, we got on the topic of mental health. And as I read your book and you're talking about this commitment getting you outside of yourself, I ponder a lot, Lynn, lately about as we seem to get more self-focused as a culture and we're not as <clears throat> spiritually minded, really we're, we're not, we don't seem to be culturally as focused on the greater thing. I wonder about the correlation with mental health, with diseases of despair, with depression, because when there is nothing beyond me, it feels pretty hopeless. If it's all up to me, I feel pretty hopeless. And I feel like there's, yeah, even outside of a religious context, though, that when we have that devotion, like you're talking about our commitment um, to something greater, that's, there's such, there's such a vein of, of hope in there mm -hmm. that again, I, your book being timely, as you know, it is, I wonder about that from a mental health. And I find the people who are struggling with it, not that it's a cure-all, not to minimize anything at all, but a commitment to something greater seems like quite, it's big medicine. Yeah, I think it is big medicine. And even just service is medicine for people who are struggling with mental health, getting engaged even physically in some form of service. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think there's a, um, there's, you could say the mental health crisis is really a crisis of the egoic consumerism um, kind of hopeless way that we're living with no real uh, belief in the future. And given that the uh, environmental crisis, the climate crisis, the health crisis, the political crisis, the education crisis, the economic crisis, you know, every single thing, every big institution on earth is in some sort of form of crisis. 
And of course, that's going to impact our being, our very sense of self. And what it really does is is remove the um, the anchor that we that I think makes life worth living, which is possibility. Anchor mm-hmm. to the possibility of life. What is what is possible for our future? And so, one of my <clears throat> biggest commitments is to generate possibility wherever I go. Um, possibility is generative it's different than hope um hope somehow i'm not really sure how to talk about hope because i don't know that i know it that well but possibility is creative you can create a possibility you and i can create that the, a possibility that this conversation will um if listened to by people who are having mental depression or facing suicide will lift them out of that and have them see something that they never saw before that the world needs them that they were born now because there's something that they have that's unique to them that must be contributed for us to make it as a as a species and that possibility is is something that might pull them out of depression and pull them away from a choice to end their life. So that's that's what I mean. So creating possibility is a, is an act of courage and in many ways cynicism and um darkness and promoting darkness can be a political act of of great um you know uh, irresponsibility. So I, I feel like generating possibility is one of the jobs that we all have to do. And I, I can feel that you do that. I mean, when you when I listen to your life and what you have created and your nine kids and oh, my God, you're just a possibilist. <laughs> Frankie Moore LePay, one of my favorite authors, she calls herself a possibilist. She made that term up and I'm one, too. A I'm a possibilist. I I'm, love that. I've never heard that. A possibilist. Um, I will, I like that. Well, one of the things that you shared just in the initial info that I got from you was that you have an unrelenting stand for the possibility of life. And I, I thought, do. I want you on my show. So here, <laughs> here we go. I, yeah, I, I do. I, I love that. And I find, yeah, hope that we seem to be in a more, uh, a, a less hope filled culture. And that when you commit to that, something greater than yourself. I don't know. I don't know how I would get out of bed in the morning if I didn't have that hope. And I think that's one of the things I'm most grateful for. And I no longer take it for granted. I did that. I wake up every morning with that hope, with that curiosity, with that inspiration. And I see what value that is now. And to not have that, uh, I would be struggling uh, so much as well. So again, to look at this book that you've written on living a commitment, like to find that thing that you're impassioned about, that you're burdened about, that your heart breaks about, like we, like we mentioned and let that guide you and pull you. What was the line that you said when the, the need, the, the need or the pain, pain. becomes a pull? Pain pushes until pain vision push. pulls. Pain pushes. That's, that's well, a beautiful for, for, any woman who's had a baby, you'll you'll remember when you're in labor, the more it hurts, the closer you are to having a child. Yeah. So that's that's the example of pain pushes until vision pulls. And when the vision is clear, I'm going to have a baby, you can stand anything. Yeah. But when the pain is there and you don't know what's happening and it, it, it's it, it's producing nothing, that then it then it 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 doesn't push you towards the vision, but it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful phrase comes from Michael Beckwith pain pushes until vision pulls Reverend Michael Beckwith. Relationships is our next one, Lynn. And 
I mean, I want to ask you your, you know, your value. I know you've got family and uh, married and uh, relationships are of high value, but this too, I mean, I hear your book is a book of relationships. You talk so much about the relationships that you've had. And it's interesting as we look at commitment and we think about where are the strongest relationships of, of mankind, even in our culture. Now we often talk about the brotherhood that, that, that people find in the military and sisterhood now too, in the military or in sports, or they had it in school and it often falls away somewhat when we get into life and we're just, hmm. uh, you know, segregated, going our different ways, somebody to work, somebody to school, and we don't have that. And yet commitment is so often what creates the best relationships we ever find. And again, another thing that seems like without that, if we have less of that today, no wonder we feel more isolated than ever. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. And that although the internet is the now like the mycelium, which is the fungus that connects the natural world, it is the, uh, it is the mycelium for the human family. It's connecting us brilliantly, beautifully. I mean, look at what what would have happened during COVID had we not had Zoom or these yeah. technologies that kept us in relationship with each other. So in many ways, it's just a godsend. And in other ways, it has us rooted in front of our computers in our houses, not uh, physically being with each other, even post COVID, I know we're not post-COVID, but sort of post the intensity of COVID. Right. Um, you know, people are choosing to work at home. People are not really going to the office. People are not really as as um, as interested in gathering uh, as they were because they can gather in these other ways, and it's so convenient. But I really feel what you're saying is absolutely true, that the um, – that really where where life is is in relationship that's where it takes place and and you you don't really um do anything by yourself i mean we think we do but really all great joy and even the 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 sadness and the grief that comes with life is processed through relationships with other people and that's where the beauty is that's where the pain is and that's where the joy is and it's all one. Pain is not the opposite of joy. It's it's all a continuum. Joy on one end, pain on the other. They're related. The more painful life is, often the more capacity you have ultimately for joy. You know, suffering is 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 not all bad. I mean, I I don't recommend it exactly, but at the same time, it deepens the soul and the capacity to relate. So um I'm grateful for the suffering that I've both witnessed and the suffering I've been in. But relationships, as you say, yes, are are key to everything. And those of us who who manage or let's say navigate those relationships with respect and reverence have a much more joyful life than those of us who try to hide from relationships or withdraw from them. And I know that that's somehow what's happening today. There's so much permission to withdraw um, rather than engage. So I love that you you bring that up. I think it's really an important topic, and and really kind of in many ways the key to, to the key to living a life of meaning. Well, it's interesting you bring up pain. We, we that's the second time we talked about pain right here, just in this short discussion already. And I I recently had on Whitney Goodman. She wrote the book Toxic Positivity, and our to paraphrase somewhat our. Uh, how we push pain away and just try to slap a happy face over that and how we're missing it. Obviously if it overwhelms us into depression or something, that's not good either, but it's the not grappling with it, not dealing with it, which 
you know, to you, I mean, if we look even at the stories of your book on commitment, most of those were people who were committing to a service to humanity, addressing some form of pain, trying to alleviate it. It feels like mm-hmm. that is where we find our greatest, most fulfilling commitments. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's really a, there's a, um, a wonderful um, quote. I should go and get it so that I tell it properly. But it's in my book, so I, maybe I can find it in there. But it's a, it's a, it's about that I, rather than turning away from suffering, the opportunity is to go toward it, hmm. to go toward it, and to be in the presence, be pros- proximate to suffering, allows you to. It's like um, uh, it's a form of um, uh, redemption actually, to be proximate to suffering and not to be afraid of it and to know that it's part of life. It's a beautiful part of life. It's a hard part of life. It's a, it's a, it's a in many ways, tragic part of life, but it is part of life. We can't deny it, that there's nobody who doesn't suffer. You know, some people more than others, but, but maybe not. Maybe we all suffer in our own ways. Mother Teresa really taught me that people of enormous wealth and, and power and status have tremendous suffering also, uh, just like people who are poor and stuck in the vicious cycle of poverty. And she, she told me how important it was to have compassion for people caught in, in the, um, you know, the, the tyranny of excessive wealth where nobody relates to them anymore as a human being. They relate to them as their, as their trust fund, as their pocketbook or their net worth. They, they can't trust anybody anymore. They don't, they feel isolated. And, and this thing about staying connected and realizing that we are all one human family and we're one with the community of life and we're one with the earth. That's so critical right now to re recreate retell the story of who we are so that we realize that interconnectivity is the key to everything it's not competition that's key to everything now it's collaboration it's co-laboring working together co-laboring that's that's how we're going to get through this wormhole we're in called the you know the epic crises that we're in right now and 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 then the the relationship we have even with the mother with the earth we broke from her, and now she's giving us feedback. She wants us back. She's calling for us. She, you know, I even think gravity is her way of keeping her keeping her creatures close, mm. you know, out of her love for us. And we've broken with her, and that's part of the the you know this huge feedback of climate crisis is it, maybe it's not happening to us; it's happening for us, so that we reclaim our relationship with her, with each other, and the community of life. And the community of life, all species, we're all in this together. So I love that you're bringing up relationships. I think it's just absolutely vital and critical. And it is the stuff of life. That's what I saw in my vetting of you, honestly, Lynn, was seeing you as somebody who puts relationship, uh, honors relationship above all. And that was even, I can go to your social media and see that that went beyond just humans. It was to (laughs) the earth and the animals and whatnot, but that you have a, a significant honoring of humanity and life and that relationships. And that's, that's been a new 
perspective per paradigm for me over the past few years of relationships, not just with a human. I have a relationship with everything. I have a relationship with my coffee. I have a relationship yes. with my food, with my activities, with my exercise, with my money, with, uh, as you know, with your first book, um, about money, that it is all about relationship and that you are calling us to that, that that is at the core of our commitments. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've been married. You've probably been married for a long time too. I've been married for 56 years. Wow. And um, when I think about that, I mean, you know, I could say, well, I just married the right guy. Well, that's probably true. I did marry the right guy. But <laughs> but but also we've we've made our relationship about something larger than itself. Mm. Our relationship is we work with together in Pachamama Alliance. We work together with the Hunger Project. Um, we we've made our relationship larger than our own lives so mm. that it's in service of something. So we just work things out. But if it's uh, the relationship's all about itself, then it, you know, it's like um, self, too self-serving. It, it it gets stuck in the gnarliness of, of he said, she said. Yeah. But when the relationship is devoted to something larger than yourself, and it, this this is true of marriages with with kids. You know, your relationship sometimes is devoted to your own children. That that's okay too. I'm just suggesting that relationship works when it has a larger context than itself. Yeah. And that's an important part of relationships working, I think. <clears throat> Lynn, health and wellness is the next one. And we did talk about that earlier in regards to commitment and to service. And you made that statement about it not being a sacrifice <clears throat> of self, but a contribution of self. And that if you're over here and you, and we talked a little bit off off uh, off recording of some of my past business stuff and that I had one that was uh, incredibly life-giving to me and, and a lot of people. And yet I did it poorly. I did it sacrificially. I burnt out and it stopped. And so the good that it was doing, it stopped because I did sacrifice instead of uh, a contribution. And I don't say that from an, it wasn't even altruistically. I was, do, I was feeding me. I was feeding things that I needed unhealthfully and, mm-hmm. and hurt that. So again, to take that into this, well, I'll start from just a base standpoint of view. So along all these years of devoting yourself, committing yourself to these things, you said that while you're pouring out, you've got to drink as well. What are the things that you do? Just literally the tang- tangible day-to-day things that you do for your health and wellness in regards you know, to nutrition and exercise and whatnot, so that you're able to continue contributing. Um, well, uh, let's see. I have a lot of practices, none of which are like, here's the one I use every minute or every day because I, I change them all the time. I, I talk to people like you. I read a book. I hear about something. And then I think, well, I'll try that. So I'm very eclectic, I'll say. But one of the things that's a stability for me is is gratitude and appreciation. And um I, I'm a, a student and a, and a friend of Brother David Stendelross, the great Benedictine monk, who is the icon of gratefulness and started a website called gratefulness.org. And um, he's 96 and he just is loves life because he's grateful for everything. Hmm. He's grateful for the computer. He's grateful for to take another breath. He's grateful for a yellow pad and a pen. He's grateful for, you know, water. He's grateful for uh, for, for sunshine. He's grateful for clouds. He's just grateful. And um, he's really taught me that any troubled time or darkness can be turned around 
instantly through gratitude. It's so simple. You think it couldn't possibly work, but it does. Mm. So um, I do, a, a, you know, a, a pretty autumn, you know, automatic pilot is not the way to put it because it's pretty conscious. But I, in the morning, I always am grateful for the sweet territory of sleep, even if I just have two hours, even if I just had four hours and I needed 10. Um, I'm just grateful for the sweet territory of sleep. And then I'm grateful um, you know, I, I, I really recognize and pay attention to the grateful that I'm waking up, that I'm alive, that I have another day given that's been given to me. I'm grateful for that I've been given life. Yeah. At night, I used to go over all the things I didn't get done and they're dribbling over tomorrow, tomorrow. And what didn't I do? And where did I fall short? I used to do that at night. And now I look at, I really have trained myself to look at all that I accomplished. So as I'm going to sleep, I look at all the things I've accomplished. This interview with you, the interview I did earlier than this, the, 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 all the emails I answered, all the letters I wrote, all the blah, blah, blah. And I look at what I've accomplished, not what I didn't accomplish, not the scarcity of the day, but the, 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 the abundance of the day. <clears throat> and then I tell myself, and now you deserve to go into the sweet territory of sleep. Mm. So these are just like, they're conversations that I conduct with myself. And why I say <clears throat> they're useful is because I believe we don't live in the world. We don't live in our lives. We don't live in our relationships. We don't live in our communities. We don't live in our families. We don't live in our companies. We live in the conversation we have about the world. We live in the conversation we have about our life. We will live in the conversation we have about our community, What we have, the conversation we have about our kids, the conversation we have about our job. And we may not be able to change our job or change our boss or change the world, but we have absolute omnipotence over the conversation we have about the world, the conversation we have about our boss, the conversation we have about our day, and that we have absolute omnipotence over that. So why not choose a conversation that empowers you? And it's not, you know, positive thinking. It's empowering thinking. It's really even even allowing yourself to grieve when that's appropriate, going into the depths and the beauty of grief. <clears throat> so those practices uh, of gratitude and, and Brother David, one time when he was staying with me, he woke up and he said, today, I'm going to be grateful for yellow. <laughs> but cool is that? And then, oh, I just love the color of this yellow pad. It's so vibrant. And oh. Look at the sunshine over here. And oh, there's a yellow bird flying by. And they have a beautiful yellow yellow uh, dress on over there. And, you know, he would just revel in yellow for a whole day. Or he'd pick the next day, he'd pick a different color. He'd pick uh, the vibration of a bird song. Or, you know, just this guy is all about being grateful. And that's a practice that I have. I end every meeting, every conference call with appreciations and gratitudes. So that's probably real obvious and really simple, but it totally and completely works. And with our family, you know, we do something called five and five. And when somebody's down, I say to them, let's do five and five. And so I say five things I love about you. And you say five things you love about me. And that's it. <clears throat> so I might say, I love that shirt, that blue checkered shirt. I love that you've got that kind of microphone that doesn't splatter your your voice. I love that you're using ear pods with me today. I love your blue eyes, and I love the countenance with which you're dealing with me. You know, it doesn't have to be something really, really profound. And then you say five things you love about me. And that just 
do a five and five whenever you're down with find somebody and do a five and five with them. That's another practice. Um, and you know, I have a million things like that, but I, I just, I'd say gratitude is my number one. Well, in health and wellness, we actually, uh, the second, the next piece is mind and mental health. And it feels like you just covered what you do. I mean, from a mental health standpoint, those are your foundations. <clears throat> yeah. And I am also, you know, I, we talked about this earlier, but I'm just aware that this is an instrument that I've been given that I need to take care of. Yeah. It's not something that I, this body, I can't abuse this. I mean, I can, but that's not very appropriate. That doesn't have any sacred value to me. It's not reverent. So I need to take care of this too. And sometimes I, you know, burn the candle at both ends. I do that a lot, but then I give myself a break. So, um, you know, this is a, if you're in sacred relationship with your body and sacred relationship with your moods, your moods, sacred relationship with your your uh your health and your well-being and sacred relation sacred relationship with with your self-care then you you won't make that your focus necessarily but you won't leave it out either um so that's a really important um part of both mental health and physical health is realizing this is a sacred gift that you've been given and you got to take care of it I'm curious you using the word moods. That's not the most common word relationship with your moods. You didn't say mental health. You didn't say attitude, but moods. explain that. Well, you can, you can always pick up someone's mood. When you walk into a room, you can, you can pick up their mood before you hear their attitude. Hmm. And, um, uh, and, and like, sometimes I have a friend named Tammy White and she says she hires contractors, plumbers, you know, people, caterers, according to their mood. If she feels good when she's talking to them and they're up, up, you know, they're uplifting and they're they have kind of a positive outlook and they're in a, you know, they're in what most people call a good mood. Mood's such an interesting term. I don't even know what it means. I've never looked it up, but it made me think about, oh yeah, what, what's the mood I'm in now, and can I shift my mood so that I'm in an upbeat, positive, helpful, useful you know, affirming mood. <clears throat> and, um, and you, you know, you, you think about people, they, they're, there's people who are super moody and kind of Casey and you got to always uplift them. Um, and then there's people who are, you know, they always are in a positive mood. So um, hmm. it's interesting. I, I haven't thought about the word mood that much, but my friend Tammy used it. And now I'm starting to use it too. And I'm going to look it up. Well, I, I just wrote down that you can pick up on someone's mood even before their attitude completely. I mean, you can yeah. do that when you walk up to somebody at the you know, cash register of the grocery and see their mood or at you know, school when I see the kids' teachers or my spouse or my kids or whatever, and you can sense the mood and yeah, you adjust yourself to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You adjust to it or you, or you can impact it. You can impact right. it too. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting. Well, and I do want to know, again, just from a, a tangible standpoint, uh, anything specific that you do nutritionally for you were just, you just, uh, was it yesterday? You were with Mark Hyman. That's the, uh, I saw water. you the water. Water, 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 water. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I get, can I, I'll show off mine then. Here's, here's, yeah. <laughs> okay. Water. Yeah. What else nutritionally, any specific diet you adhere to or what works for you? Um, no, I just try everything all the time. I, I, you know, I used to uh, think that I should be doing this or should be doing that. And there's all this so much advice about that. But I, I love, um, I love, I don't, you know, I, I was a sort of a vegetarian. And then I realized, no, I've had malaria. So I need to eat more meat for my 
liver. And, you know, I, I, I'm kind of an omnivore, but I, I pay attention and I um, pay attention to what I eat and realizing that it's, it's, you know, food is sacred and food is such an important part of who we are and food needs to be nourishing. So we're, you probably do this too. We do grace before every meal. We, I make sure I put a lot of love in what I cook. Uh, that's the main ingredient. Um, so I really believe in that kind of stuff. I don't think that's, you know, Pollyanna or kind of silly or new agey. I think it's true. Yeah. I think you really want to love cooking and put love in your food. And you want to, uh, you know, give gratitude for the food on the table, whatever it is, it is small or large or, or and, and that that's that's really my practice as well. And that my nutritional practice is to take pretty good care of myself. And, you know, there's things I love and I slip off the step, but mostly I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I, getting to look forward to every evening of cooking with a glass of wine and some music is just uh, that's part of my that's there's part of my mental health right there. That's how, great. How about uh, just physically, Lynn? Just from a, a movement and, and exercise standpoint. Um, well, I love yoga, and I do a, a, a yoga practice every day. They're very short, but just salutes to the sun. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them. And then I also um, try, when I can, do when I'm home, I do something called the parkour. And parkour is an um, outdoor circuit training thing yeah. that's all over the world. And I have a parkour right near my house. And I love to be outside early in the morning when the sun is rising. Something about that when the sun is rising makes, I just love it, love, love, love it. Because the birds are singing and the light is so awesome. And sunrise is, is I've learned from... From many people, mostly indigenous people, that there's a very precious hour in the first hour of sunlight that is um, like the golden hour in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is very precious. And whenever I can be outside and, and witnessing that, even if in this foggy, sometimes cloudy San Francisco, I, I love doing that. So uh, and I do the parkour, which is a very simple but very um, well-rounded circuit training. And I, I like that. It's uh, I think it's why. CrossFit has, has kind of gotten to be a big thing because you're moving a lot. And I've been thinking about that. It's interesting that you bring that up, Lynn. I live up on top of a mountain and I run and I ride a lot, but it's not always the movements that you would do doing like what you're talking about in the parkour. So I've been just running through the woods, jump over to kind of be pretend I'm a deer, you know, go under the yeah. log, over the log, jump from one to the other and make my body yeah. move. And uh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I was a runner for, for 40 years. I was marathoner. And so I love oh. that's like my meditation. And, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm now 77. So my knees say not anymore, not anymore. So my parkour is about as, as rigorous as I can get with, with um, making sure I take care of my body. Cause you know, I'm getting up there, but I, I, I loved running. Oh, I wish I could still do it. I loved it. And we have bikes. We, we bike, but we just got electric bikes. So I shouldn't tell you that, but we do. And it's so fun. <laughs> I, I'm a fan. I'm out here in Colorado and there's, you know, there's lots of critics of the e-bikes, but the amount of more people that I see that are just outdoors. And even if they've got some assistance, man, they're, they're not on the couch. They're outdoors. Yeah. They're maneuvering yeah. a bike around. They're pedaling some. I, uh, I'm a fan of my parents or let's say my dad just got one as well. And you said, uh, Lynn, you're 77. Yeah. Uh -huh. I do want to point out there that here you are 77 with another book coming out. And I am fortunate enough to have a blue zone of great people who are into health and they are in their seventies and their eighties and they're going strong, but it's very tangible or very acute. I should say 
that you have a lot of peers who are not going that direction. Um, mm -hmm. and that's got yeah. to be very, uh, yeah, again, the word acute to you that you've got people your age who are not flourishing as you are. Hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, some people want to retire and that's the goal they have. That's, yeah. that's not necessarily the goal I, I aspire to, but you know, to each his own, but I'm, we are, Bill and I, we're, He's uh, going to be 80. We're refired instead of respired, <laughs> retired. We, we work in the Amazon rainforest with indigenous people, and it's so inspiring and so compelling. And we hike in the forest and we, you know, we're, we're totally into it. And we'll work till we drop. You know, we love it. We love it. And so it keeps us alive. And we work with so many young people that makes it super inspiring. And, you know, we do the part that's ours to do. We're the elders, the sages, the wise, you know, the wise people have a lot of experience, but, but we work our tails off too, and we love it. So I'm, that's my, my stage of life is being refired instead of retired. <laughs> well, the next one that we're on here now is work and career and business. And you know, I normally would ask your values around that, but you just, I have a book with me right now that shows me, I think <laughs> your values living a committed life and it's working at something that you're committed to that, you know, it's interesting, Lynn, I was inspired by a friend and I'm, I'm kind of going through Ecclesiastes in the Bible right now, which is Solomon. And it's so interesting. I mean, I've read it, I don't know how many times, but it, it always hits me different and how he comes over and over and over and just says, you know what, at the end of the, my paraphrasing, this is Solomon as of Kevin Miller is, you know what, the best you can do, just enjoy the work of your day and eat and drink and have, and I, and I see you alive with that. You, you, you're, you're laughing. Right? I mean, you're committed to what you're doing. You love it. And you just, you love what you do. You, they, I feel like you, for you, it's not, you've never had to do your work. You get to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, it, and that's a wonderful thing to, to that phrase, get to do it rather than have to do it or must do it or should do it. We try to invite, you know, take that word out of the English language, which would be good to take out should, yeah. but we get to do, we get to, we get to talk to each other. We get to work. We get to make a difference. It's, it's, you know, it's a privilege. It's an incredible privilege to do work that matters. I, I, I wouldn't stop it for a second. Um, and I love, love, love doing it. And I love that I have the chance to do it and the health to do it, but I think it keeps me healthy. I have the health to do it. Yes. And maybe that's my genetic code and I'm grateful for that. But I also think it keeps me healthy because yeah. um, yeah. I need to be healthy. Just like a commitment forges you into the person you need to be, a commitment keeps you healthy so that you can deliver. So, um, yeah, I'm grateful. And with work um, in that and committing you talked recently, you mentioned that, that you're involved with so many things. I would think that it's got to be a, I don't know if you would say it's a risk or a temptation though, to spread yourself too thin. Is that an effort for you to keep, make sure that you're not, well, like we talked about that you're still in a capacity to contribute and you're not ebbing over into sacrificing and just doing too much. Yeah. I have to navigate that and calibrate that all the time because I'm so fired up as I said, I'm, I'm engaged and interested um, in life so fully that I have to really navigate my desire to serve. So um, I, but how I, you know, kind of how I do that, which I think is what you're asking, is I have a context 
that's larger than all my different things. So I work in the Ecuadorian Amazon and Peruvian Amazon with indigenous people, 30 indigenous groups. That's the Pachamama Alliance. I work with the Nobel Women Peace Prize laureates, the women who won the Nobel Prize. I work with the Soul of Money Institute, which is what the book is really comes out of that. And we teach all kinds of courses. I'm doing a lot of work with women I call the Sophia Century. You know, this century, this first hundred years in the in the third millennium is a very critical time in history. The first century in the third millennium. We're only 22 years into that. Mm. And I think it's the Sophia Century the century when women will take our rightful role in coequal partnership with men and the world will come into balance. So those are four distinct tracks. And then I have my family and my 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 beloved husband, Bill. Um, but when I really look at it, it's all under one large commitment, which is to make the world work for everyone with no one and nothing left out. You could say the other large commitment is to bring forth an environmentally sustainable spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. Um, so the context is, it's one thing, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's doing working with the Nobel women or working with indigenous people of the Amazon or helping people in their relationship with money or working with women on their uh, stepping into their greatness. I'm, I'm actually bringing forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. So it's all one thing. And the commitments are not competing. They're collaborative. They're warping and weaving a tapestry with one another. And I used to try to figure out, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? And that's, that's over for me. All of it is, is an expression of one thing. And that keeps me uh, not only sane, but totally inspired. Um, and I feel really good about that. <laughs> I, I want to ask, and I mentioned this in our previous talk when I mentioned uh, Patrick Lencioni and his uh, new assessment, uh, Working Genius. On, 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 and it kind of went, and I'm going to ask it here, on there's the one aspect of what you're choosing to be involved in, like those uh, those endeavors, what you're committing to. And then how you're doing it. And I would assume that in your evolution, at some point you realize, okay, there's one thing about what I'm going to be involved with, but I know how I need to be involved in no matter what the platform is. Does that make sense? Right. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, that, I mean, I'll say just a a little something about that. There's a, there's a, um, I, I had a revelation, I'll say. Um, that what people want for me now is my presence rather than my productivity. Hmm. And that's a very different way of being because I'm a very productive person and I love productivity um, and I'm still productive and I still produce. And what I can, what I really know people want for me is my presence hmm. And um, and that relaxes me and allows me to just be myself and give people what they really want, which is my presence. And, you know, if I'm productive, too, they're they're fine with that. But that's not what they're after. And that's not what I'm after so much anymore, the way I was. So I'm in a different stage of life than you are. But I also feel that in many cases, no matter what stage of life you are, there's times when people just want your presence not your productivity and to pay attention to that. That's so interesting, Lynn, to be candid. That's, 
I'm grateful for the um, sweet testimonial you gave me a little bit ago on enjoying doing this with each other and this talk. And I'm grateful for the growth of the show. And I, I wonder if some of it was just what you said, me learning that more than my performance on the show and trying to be a brilliant uh, interviewer, I just really just want to have a conversation about what I'm curious about. And when I do that, it seems like it serves everyone well, but as such a, it's so again, it's not count. It, it is counterintuitive that you go out and you, you perform and you produce, like you said, and that's been a hard lesson with my family. Instead of being the guy who fixes everything with a Superman complex and is responsible for everything, they'd rather that I was just kind of there and happy. And uh, yeah. that's a hard, that was hard for me. So thank you for mm-hmm. pulling that out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's such a gift. I'm sure your presence is a huge gift to your children and your wife. Well, and it is to me. It is to your listeners. So uh, I'll likewise, do that for all of us. Likewise. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you. The next one here, Lynn, is money and finances and wealth. And of course, your first uh, book, The Soul of Money, is getting to that. So to ask you your values, we'll go ahead and, and share some of that ethos with us. Um, well, I, I love money. I love it. I think it's wonderful stuff. The way I see it is it's a current. It's, that's why it's called a currency. It moves through our life. And um, we can use it to fulfill our immediate needs and to take care of our families and take care of ourselves. But then we need to pass it on where it'll do the most good for the most people. Mm. And um, uh, rather than accumulate it, I mean, I want to be known for what I allocate, not what I accumulate. Um, And this is hard for people now because there's so much strife and uh, fear around money and the inflation and the the economic crisis and the, and the climate crisis and the, and the pandemic taking so many people out of work. And uh, at the same time, money doesn't belong to any of us. It belongs to all of us. It's like water. It just moves around. And for some people it comes through like a little trickle, for others, it comes through like a rushing river. But whatever it is, if it's moving, if you can let it move in and move out of your life, um, it, when it's moving, just like water, it purifies, it, it cleanses, it makes things grow. But when it's hoarded and held, just like water, it becomes toxic and makes you sick. And um, so I work with people of enormous wealth and help them let go of, of of trying to have more, 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 more. It's also the other uh, metaphor is blood. You know, blood moves through our bodies. It keeps us healthy. It t- carries nutri- nutrition. It, it carries waste. But if it gets clotted or stuck and stops moving, it kills. And the same thing with water. So I'm all about everybody's a philanthropist. The word philanthropy means love of human life. So that's what it means. Everybody is one of those. Um, whatever we have, we should definitely take care of ourselves. We we want to take care of ourselves and our families. And at the same time, we need to pass it on. And we've gotten caught in consumerism and in collecting and accumulating and having and holding on to stuff. That's just making us, it's literally making us sick. Excuse me. Yeah. No, I, and that's why your first book sold so well and was so popular, I think, because you hit 
on those aspects that we all feel and we all feel that I don't think the consumerism has given us any more joy. It's just, it's more like an addiction. We just need more and it's not working. And yet it's the culture we live in. Yeah. And, and I make the distinction of enough or sufficiency, which is almost impossible to find in a consumer culture, but we all know when we've had enough to eat and then we, we think we've got to have a little bit more. We all know when we, we've talked long enough. We, this thing about enough, if we can establish a relationship with enough, which is not an amount of anything exactly, it's an experience. It's a way of being in life, a sufficiency, that I feel sufficient, I am sufficient, I have sufficient resources, I've, I've done a sufficient job. That doesn't mean it stops there, but then you're on a platform of enoughness, expanding that to be of service rather than you're accumulating more out of a hole in your heart that you don't have enough out of an experience of lack. So, you know, I wrote a whole book on this, but it's really a a way of being in the world, a way of walking in the world. And it's not about an amount. It's about a way of being where you know you're sufficient. You know, the world is sufficient, can take care of all of us and will if we, if we let it not try to gouge it or, you know, Gandhi said there's enough for our need, not for our greed. And there isn't enough for our greed, mm-hmm. but there is absolutely enough for our need. Absolutely. For all, for everyone. So, um, yeah, money is, a, is one of the pariahs in life. It's one of the beauties of life. Uh, but to really, you know, to earn what is appropriate for you to earn, to contribute what's appropriate for you to contribute, to spend what's appropriate for you to contribute, to invest, of course, to build your wealth. Yes, I totally am for that at the same time to know that you're enough and that there is enough is a different way of walking in the world with money and um, money is a currency it's meant to flow it's a carrier and can carry love commitment courage forgiveness or it can carry hate exploitation extraction um, you know uh, darkness Uh, so allow money to carry your love into the world and earn it in a way that you love just what you're doing. You you love what you're doing. I can tell you love it. Yeah. And I hope you're paid well for it. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure you're paying adequately for it. Uh, so money for me is is a, a really a beautiful place to apply the principles of transformation. And sometimes we apply them everywhere else but there. Uh, but if we p- apply them there, it, it, the principles of transformation work as well with money as they do with everything else. Lynn, the last one here is achievements. And I think it was when we, our first discussion together and I, I talked about the things we commit to and somewhat gauging them on an altruistic level. But we, you came to talking about that ultimately it is in service to others that we find the greatest purpose, that we find the greatest commitment. And I would venture to say that that's where you see – I'm just so well aware of how we – I don't like the word judge. Uh, it sounds so bad, but we do view ourselves through our achievements or our lack thereof. That's the deathbed regret, regrets, the things we didn't do. That when we look at the, achieve, the achievements that make us in a healthy, good way, proud of ourselves and looking at that, I, I would think that the focus here of your book of committing to this greater cause, something worthy, something that helps people has got to be at the top of the list. Yeah, I think it is. And it is for me. And I, I think it really is for for everybody, ultimately, when you really think about it, what difference did I make? Um, And, you know, everything, whether you're running a big company or you're 
you're working at the drugstore, you're helping out at the hardware store, or you have a, a an NGO or a social profit that's that's uh, you know feeding people or stopping the abuse of of children. Um, we all are generating, if we want to, a social profit, a social profit, mm-hmm. um, as well as a financial profit. And a social profit, you can you can spell that two ways. One is P R O F I T. Uh, I never use the word nonprofit any longer because I don't believe that there is a nonprofit. I think there's always a social profit for everything. Mm-hmm. Nonprofit is sort of a tax category or a non-tax category or non-governmental or non-not-for-profit. Uh, Those are defining us by what we're not in the tax world or in the financial world. But rather, I think all of us, people working in what's traditionally called charitable sector or in the uh, in the profit-making sector, we're all generating a social profit. If we're fulfilled with the social profit we've generated, then our life, we are a social profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. In other words, we stand for a future better than the one that we inherited, and we lived it. We lived it until that prophecy became real. Um, and so I, I think, you know, one of the things that Mark said this morning, Mark Hyman, Dr. Mark Hyman, he said that altruism, there's all these studies that say it's really good for your health. Mm. <laughs> it makes you feel better about yourself, but it also you makes you feel better in your body, that it's excellent for your health. It's excellent for your brain. It's excellent for your, you know, your dopamine and all these different things. Uh, so to be a a person who serves, a person who makes a difference, a person who cares, a person who loves, a person who's courageous and committed and forgiving and compassionate. It's good for your health. Mm. And that is not only an achievement for you, but an achievement for the world. Yeah. And um and so if your accomplishments if your accomplishments, sorry, are are things that you know have bettered a life for other people, then then Yes, take pride in them. Yes, own them. Yes, be fulfilled by them. Yes, be grateful that you had the opportunity and the privilege of participating in something worth living for. Lynn, thanks for the opportunity and the privilege of talking with you for the past couple mm-hmm. hours. Um, <laughs> just been a gift. You have you have helped my health uh, today. I'm I'm eager to share this with my family and with this audience. I'm grateful for the work you do, and thank you for. Um, given me this devoted and committed time today. Oh, thank you so much. And it was a joy talking to you. And I hope to meet you in the flesh someday, Kevin. Maybe we'll go to the Amazon together. I can take you to the uh, to the rainforest with Pachamama Lions with some of your kids or with your wonderful wife. It'd be an absolute gift. Yeah, absolute wonderful. gift. Um, I'd be honored. Thank you, uh, man. Thank you. Okay, take care. You will serve yourself well to get all you can from Lynn Twist. You'll find yourself in a healthy way, forgetting about yourself and looking forward toward your purpose. You can find Lynn Twist's brand new book, Living a Committed Life Anywhere. And again, connect with her at soulofmoney.org. Thank you as always for tuning into this self-helpful podcast. Always would ask that you leave a review if you haven't about what you think about the show. Best thing you can do, keep the conversation going. Talk about it at dinner today or at the uh, when you're working out or wherever you might be and let the conversation dig into you more and help somebody else with it. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others.